You can open your Bible today to James chapter 4, and we're going to be making our way today into chapter 5, which means that we're coming near the end of this uh, series through the book of James. We've got one more Sunday, and then we're actually going to finish the book of James on Good Friday. We have a Good Friday service at 6.30 that you also want to put on your calendar, and that is when we'll finish the book of James. Really excited for uh, that teaching. I think it fits perfectly leading into uh, Easter Sunday. So a lot of great things happening in the church, and I uh, just want to, again, encourage you to go to the back today and sign up for one of those home groups. It's an awesome season we're headed into. But today, James chapter 4, uh, making our way into chapter 5, I've titled my message this morning, which I you know, sometimes I give a title to every message I do, but sometimes I just really feel like, you know, one is from the Lord. And today, my message is titled, God is God and you are not. Okay. And so I'm going to be saying that phrase throughout this message this morning, God is God and you are not. But what I've loved about the book of James so far is that it's filled with bold truth, bold truth that is also met with bold grace. It's the kind of truth that's going to make a proud and an arrogant person mad, but it's the kind of truth that makes a humble and wise person glad. So what are you? And this book shows us that great truth. God is God and you are not. He increases, we decrease. And so today, as we continue through our study of James, what we want to do is we want to do it in a posture of humility, asking the Lord that he would search our hearts and and that he would change our hearts, and, and also that, that God would have us be all that he wants us to be, that, that we would be conformed, as the word says, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what we're doing, right? That's as, as we've been studying the book of James, which has been a hard-hitting book. Sunday after Sunday, we leave with just challenges to live out, to become a holy people, a people set apart for the Lord. And I believe that this book has been refining us as a church family. And and I call us family because that is what we are. And we know that James, right, who wrote this book, was the half-brother of Jesus. They shared the same mother. And, you know, the command to Jesus, to all of his brothers and sisters, is be holy, for I am holy. And James was a man who knew that holiness could not just be in your words. It had to be seen in your action. And James had the opportunity to see how Jesus lived, having grown up with him, having seen his life, even from from when James was born, being the younger brother of Jesus, following his example. And you have to imagine that, that many times throughout James's life, it would have been hard to live up to Jesus, right? Why are you not more like your brother, right? It's, well, it's kind of hard, And in the flesh, James could not be holy. He could not match the perfect words and behavior of his brother Jesus. They maybe had some family resemblance, you know, being born of the same mother. Maybe they had kind of the same shape of the nose, maybe the same color hair. But to resemble the words and the actions of Jesus, that would have felt impossible for James. That is until James understood who Jesus was. That James or that Jesus is, rather, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who came to dwell among us so that he could die on a cross and be raised from the dead. And James didn't believe that Jesus was God until after the resurrection. 
When he believed the testimony of his brother's death and resurrection, James was born again, which means that the Holy Spirit came and dwelled inside of that man. And you know that else, what, what else that means? It meant that James had a new father. Not only did he share the same mother with Jesus, but now he shared the same father, the same heavenly father being adopted by God's grace into the family of God. And now by the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, James could have a new family resemblance having become this child. Now, do you have ears to hear what I'm saying this morning? I mean, because the Spirit is going to speak today through His Word. And if you're a child of God, then you're going to, you're going to hear, and you're going to receive, and you're going to want to see God change you because of it. And so if you listen by the Spirit today, you're going to be glad about the things that you hear. But I'll just tell you this, if you are listening by the flesh today, apart from the Spirit of God giving you understanding, you might get mad at the things you hear me say today. And so we have to ask, how are we hearing? Do we have the Spirit of God because we've been born again through Jesus Christ? We're in the family of God. And if we're in the family of God, we're talking family business today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come. And anyone who doesn't know you yet has not been adopted into the family of God, I pray today that would happen. But for all of us who call you brother, who call you father, who are indwelled by your spirit that bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. I pray today you would speak, Lord. God, you would speak right to our hearts through your word, knowing that your word is so sharp, so accurate to give us a true picture of who we are and who you are, that God is God and we are not. And so help us to understand this today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text today, starting in James chapter 4, Beginning at verse 11 says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this last part of James chapter 4 concludes what we were talking about last week, which is why do fights and quarrels exist among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And we've talked even recently about our tongues and how they're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, a lot about what we say and how what we say comes from what is in our hearts, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. But this section also sets the stage for what we need to realize this week, coming into chapter 5, which is that God is God and we are not. See, we're all sinners. Hopefully you came here today recognizing that, realizing that you are, are a sinner, that you have done things that have offended God and His perfect righteousness. And unless Jesus, the Son of God, had come into this world to live a perfect life and to die upon a cross to reconcile us to a holy and just God, then we would all be judged on our own by our own sins. And, and as evildoers, we would be charged with the full penalty of sin, which is eternal death and punishment, which is the worst of it being that we would be eternally separated from a good God. And many people think that they want this. Many people think that they want distance from God. They don't want God in their lives. 
They want to be the God of their own lives or, or make a God of their own liking. And, and when people think they want distance from God, they don't realize that if, if the God of heaven and earth were to withdraw his goodness and grace from this world, we would all be living in hell. You, do you realize that hell is hell because nothing of God is there? And that's what makes it so horrible. Hell is, as revealed in Scripture, the fiery judgment that will come upon those who refuse to obey the gospel of God. They refuse the free gift of salvation that's offered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and James said something earlier in this book. He said that the tongue is like a fire. You remember that little piece of tissue in your mouth that can do some unruly things? can set a forest ablaze, can steer the whole ship off course, right? It's, it's such a small part of our body, and yet it boasts of great things. And when the tongue is not controlled by the Holy Spirit, James says, it's set on fire by hell. Therefore, when we look at verse 11, which again is in the context of why are fights and quarrels happening among you people, he says, don't speak evil against another brother. Essentially, this is what James is saying. Do not bring the judgment of hell upon another by the words that you speak. And the idea of speaking against another is the idea of slandering somebody. And where does slander come from, by the way? Not from above, right? Not from God, but from the devil, and the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and slander is the devil's native tongue. Do you know that the devil actually literally means slanderer? That's his name. And that's what he does all day and all night as he goes before the throne of God, accusing the brothers and sisters in Christ, slandering the body of Christ. And so... If that is the language, that is the talk, the speaking of the devil, then why should lying, gossip, slander, coarse jesting, or any other form of corrupt talk be found among God's people? It shouldn't be. Because if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, then you've been given a new native tongue. We're to speak differently. And you know, it's been said that slander kills three people. It kills the speaker, the spoken to, and the spoken of. Everybody loses when there's slander. And so we have to come to Jesus. We have to ask the Spirit to control our tongues, not to speak evil against another person. And knowing that if God has never spoken evil against us, but that he's a savior and a gracious judge, and that he's spoken a better word over us, then James says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. See, what we're doing when we start talking about other people, putting ourselves over other people, slandering others, speaking evil of others, we are putting ourselves in a position of being a judge over another person, which is not our rightful place. That's God's position. Each and every last one of us must stand before God to give an account of our lives. And, and if you're a child of God, then you know that you won't be judged for your sins because Jesus judged your sins at the cross, didn't he? And that if you stand before God as your judge, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is more like a reward ceremony. 
you're going to hear words like, well done, good and faithful servants. And if you know the judgment of mercy that it's coming upon you because of the salvation you've received in Jesus Christ, then church, if we know that our sins were judged at the cross, why do we boast as though they were not? Why do we speak evil against another or judge another? Because think about it. If God decided to judge you by his perfect law, how could you stand? We have all fallen short. And if you failed in one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. But God gives more grace, right? God chose not to judge you by your obedience because you've never done it right. He chose to judge you by the obedience of his perfect son. So listen to this scripture that Paul writes in Galatians. Galatians chapter four, verse four through five says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now I think about how if James were to read that scripture, he would have he would have been like, oh man, I'm so glad I'm not going to be judged by my mom's name. Because I'd be a goner. But since I've been born of the Spirit through Jesus, I am going to be judged by my heavenly Father. And I have received freedom and mercy as a beloved child of God. That's why James said in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If you know how you're going to be judged mercifully before your heavenly Father, then speak as that is true. Speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying, Christians, stop judging other people. Stop speaking evil against them you are not in any kind of position to do that. God is God, and you are not. But if you judge the law, James says, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Many people don't either understand or they don't like the justice system of God, and they want to criticize it. You know, even putting themselves in a position of being a judge over God, telling God how they think he should rule the world and, and work out his perfect plans and, and who he should save and who he should not save and all sorts of things that we try to do and, and how proud we can be as people when we try to take the seat of God, if you will. And you know, the devil tried to do that. The devil tried to take the seed of God, and how did that go for him? And, and so if, if you are a slanderous, self-righteous judge, are you not of your father, the devil? If, if we are children of God, we have no reason to judge our neighbor. God has commanded us to love our neighbor, and that means that we love with mercy. Verse 12 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So if there's only one lawgiver who is able to 
judge who is able to save and to destroy, then we're forced to ask this question, who is that? Is it you? Is it me? Is it any human being? If there can only be one lawgiver and one judge, then it can only be God. And besides, he's the only one who can judge with righteous judgment. God is the only one who could judge with true justice and yet still show mercy. It's, it's wild. <laughs> we like to think that we put ourselves in a position of judge and that our judgments are accurate, and yet um, we fail all the time. See, God is the one who has the right to give eternal life and is the one who has the right to give, or rather not give, but sentence eternal death. Only God is able to save and to destroy, which means God is the God of salvation and he decides. God is God and you are not. Why would you ever decide that person's not savable or that person deserves to be destroyed? Would we ever put ourselves in that position? We do all the time. But it's quite ridiculous because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's only one who can do that. That's God. And then I'm reminded about how Pilate, you know, who was a governing leader at the time when Jesus was uh, being sentenced to crucifixion, and, and he saw himself as one who stood as a judge over Jesus. And in John chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, this is the conversation that went down between Pilate and Jesus. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Because Jesus was remaining silent because he knew he was righteous. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So again, who are you? to judge your neighbor? This is one of those rhetorical questions, right, that James asks. Who in the world do you think you are judging another person? As if you sit as God over others. Now, is there ever a place to judge? You know, Paul in the book of Corinthians talks about righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment and he does make a distinction in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He was writing to the church and he said in his first letter that he wrote to them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he had to write them back because the church interpreted that or thought that he was saying not to associate with sexually immoral people of this world. And Paul's like, that's not at all what I meant because if, if you weren't to associate with sexually immoral people of this world, you'd have to leave this world. He said, I wrote to you not to associate with the sexually immoral people who call themselves a brother or sister in Christ, somebody who's claiming to be a Christian, and yet they're living in habitual and ongoing sin. He lists a couple other types of sin that people say they're Christians, and yet they're continually and ongoingly walking in the sin. And he, and he, says, he says, let God judge the outsiders. He's saying to, to those who are of the world who don't know Jesus, let God be their judge. But, but judge those who are inside the church, right? And how, does, how do we receive righteous judgment in the church? 
sitting under this book, sitting under its seat? Are, are we not being righteously judged right now as the word of God exposes the intents of our hearts? And if you have the spirit of God, you're like, oh, I've got to change. That's true judgment. That's righteous judgment. James is talking about that unrighteous judgment. And I like what Paul captures really well in 1 Corinthians as well. In chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, he says, but with me, it's like it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. See, that is such a profound understanding that all of us as believers in Jesus Christ need to come to. God is God and we are not. There is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge. There is only one who's able to both save and to destroy. He is our God. That's his job. It's not ours. And so Paul and James were so thankful to know that if God is a judge, he's a merciful judge. And if we know this truth, then you will know that you're to speak and act as ones who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If mercy is what you want, then mercy is what you give. Jesus said, with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. To those who show mercy, mercy will be shown. Judge is those who will be judged under the law of liberty. So who are we to judge our neighbor? And all pride then gets leveled at the cross, realizing who he is and what he's done for us. Now, as we continue, we come to two areas of pride that James is going to bring to our attention. James is going to reason with us about our pride that we put in our plans and the pride that we put in our riches. And he's going to use this phrase. He's going to say, come now. I'm going to say that right now. Come now. Listen, draw in. Now that you know, now that you understand, hopefully, that God is God and you are not, come. Listen, listen to these applications. Reason now and understand your proper place before God. Come now, submit yourself to God. Come now, resist the devil. Come now, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. God's God you're not. Come to him. Listen to what he has to say to you. And in verses 13 through 17, the pride that we put in our plans is going to be brought to nothing. Listen to what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So let's think about this together. Like, come. Come and, and, and realize if God's God and you're not, then that means that he knows the future and you don't. And, and we like to think that we have a pretty good sense of the future. We, we often make plans in order to, you know, have a better future. And, and making plans is a really wise thing to do, by the way. 
What James is not saying is never plan anything out. There's wisdom, the wisdom of God to make plans and to, and to see them out. But, but what we must understand is that our futures have to be submitted to the God who knows the future. There are people who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a town. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade and make a profit. And this idea, this talking reflects the idea that they have it all planned out, except they left God out of it. And James is addressing what, what people do, which Pastor Benkai has referred to, is that there's this illusion of control. You think you have control of your life, but, but who are you? Can you save? Can you destroy? Can you even decide whether the next breath in your lungs comes? When Charles Spurgeon preached on this text, text, he gave a whole list of ways that people have died from seemingly small causes of death, like choking on a grape or, or a roof tile falling and hitting somebody on the head or, or breathing in some toxic air. He said there's, there's these little, little, there's thousands of gates of death, but there's these little tiny niches that people seem to pass through. It's like, wow, didn't think anyone would have died from that. And it, it's, we realize the fragility of life. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, much less your next breath. And, and you know, it's, again, not wrong to make plans. My, my family and I today, we're leaving after church for a short family vacation. We're going to Palm Desert. We're going to spend a few days there. We're going to relax and enjoy it. And uh, yet there is no guarantee that we make it to our destination I have a friend who I pastored with some years ago who's been in ICU since October after a car accident on his way home from preaching at church on Sunday. And, and for five months, we've been praying for him to be healed. What is your life? For you are a mist that, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. As Rob said, I had a birthday this week. I'm now 35 years young. And I know I'm young for many people in this room, and, and, and yet there's no guarantee that I live longer than the oldest person in this room. And, and let's just say that I do live a, a good, like, 95 years upon this earth. In comparison to eternity, it's still a mist. My son almost didn't make it past nine days when he was born. My daughter is nine years old right now, and thank God my family is healthy, but, but, but when the Lord wants to bring one home, he brings one home. I, I want to live 95 years of, of good years upon this earth without any of my children dying before I do, but who am I to determine that? God is God, and I am not. I, I can't decide how long I live. Or how long any of my family lives? Or how long you live? And, and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the life of Job, who lost everything all at once. Ten of his children died on the same day. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. For the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So, we're going on vacation after church today. Please pray for safe travels as we go. 
on our spring break. Make plans is always a good, if you haven't had a vacation in a while, I, I encourage you to, to plan something. It's always good. It's always wise to get away for a little while. Keep doing business. Keep making investments. Make a profit. There's a lot of great business people in this room. Keep doing that. Keep building for a better tomorrow, but hold it all loosely because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow may bring health or sickness. Tomorrow may bring wealth or poverty. Tomorrow may bring life or death. And what is tomorrow except a small particle of mist, a tiny portion of the vaporing years that we call life? So in verse 15, James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So in your living, do this and do that. Do these things. Make profits. Go to another town. Have a vacation. But always have the understanding that it is if the Lord wills. Now, I've known people who like to end every sentence that they say with that statement. Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. If the Lord wills. <laughs> it's like, right? And just everything. It's like, hey, you want to have lunch? All right. Sounds good. I'll meet you at two. If the Lord wills. You know, or whatever. So I've known people... And it's like, okay, you can drop the words on the ends of every sentence. What James is looking for is the heart attitude. He's looking for the spiritual mindset that the, the Lord knows that as we make plans, that we have subjected our plans to his sovereign will, if the Lord wills. You know, God has a will, and you know you have a will, Right? Do you know that his will is greater than your will? God is God and you are not. See, a lot of times we like to live our lives with plans. We have perhaps five-year plans, you know, are common to man to, to make. And again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I would just submit to you, you don't need a five-year plan. You need a five-minute plan. Because something I've been talking to the young adults a lot recently on Thursday nights is, is so often we are thinking so far ahead into the future and we're missing what's right in front of us. And we're not being faithful moment by moment. And, and we all want a life of fruitfulness. We all want to come to the end of our lives and say, look at this legacy that I've led. And yet, how do you get to a life of fruitfulness except by making moment by moment decisions of faithfulness? So, so what are you doing in the five, next five minutes or the next five hours or the next five days that are going to set you up for five years of fruitfulness as you seek the Lord your God and seek first his kingdom? See, a lot of times we like to make our five-year plans, but we leave God out of it. And, and James has something to say about that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And remember, boasting is speaking with pride. You, you, you speak about your own pretentious plans. And, and are you planning your life and presuming about your own future? You know, perhaps you visit with God once a week and, and you give him that one hour and you give him the honorable nod. But Monday through Saturday, you're living out your own plans. And, and there's this arrogant thinking that, that, that your life's success is by what you have achieved. Are we that arrogant to think that your life worked out just as you planned it out? I am where I am because I'm a self-made man. I got here because of me. 
Oh, really? You like to play God with your own life and leaving him out of your plans. We like to think that we become the divine hand that blesses our own personal destinies, but all such boasting is evil. So come now. If you refuse to acknowledge that God is sovereign, you have a problem, friend. Plans are not the problem. Plans are good. Prophets are not the problem. Prophets are good. The problem is planning to make a profit without acknowledging God's sovereignty. The problem is is when you assume that you're in control and yet you forget that the only one who is in true control is God. Our will is subject to his will. God is God and you are not. Just, Just remember this. The devil is making his plans apart from God and what will his end be? If you plan your life without God, when you come to the end of your life, you won't have God. You don't want that. Now, in verse 17, it says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. We, we, we like to think that, that sin is just the evil things that we commit, but I hope you also recognize that sin is also the good things that you omit like omitting to allow God to plan your days, omitting the worship that is due to his name, omitting your love for your neighbor, not humbling yourself in the sight of a sovereign God who has power to save and power to destroy. When you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, that's also sin. I like what Romans 14 defines sin as, is anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. If we're not walking by faith, if we're not walking in the spirit, if we're not walking according to God's kingdom and righteousness, what are we? We're omitting the way we know we ought to walk, and that's sin. Now, as we come to this final section, you guys have been amazing. I just commend you throughout this book of James, this hard-hitting book, that you, this has been a church that has taken the heat I love, too, that, like, you know, it's been said, preachers will say, you know, preach the congregation down to size. And when we get here to this church, we, we're going to preach the word of God. And this next section that we're going to look at in chapter 5, which we just got a couple minutes left together to go through it, it's fiery. James just brings out, like, the Old Testament prophet in him. And listen to what he says. He says, come now. So remember... Lean in. Come now. Listen. Let's, let's think about Let's reason together. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your field which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now I read that and I, 
I believe James is speaking to those who have riches and are using their riches in an ungodly way. These are the ungodly rich. And let me just tell you something. There are many godly rich. Abraham was rich. Moses, Joseph, Boaz, many people all throughout the Old Testament, rich and loved God. They were rich toward God. In the New Testament, you have, for instance, Joseph of Arimathea, who offered his grave to Jesus. You have Lydia, you've got Barnabas and Philemon, you've got these wealthy people who had material riches and yet offered them for the advancement of God's mission. That's amazing. It's not the riches that are the problem. Money is neutral, but our hearts are not neutral about money. It is our heart that God's looking for, and it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and love money because you'll hate one and and love the other. And, and so if James is reasoning about our riches and, and how we trust in our riches instead of trusting in God, that's what he's talking about. It's not wrong to have money in the bank account. It's wrong to keep your heart in the bank account. Like that's where your heart is. Your heart is entirely dependent on what you have and what you've achieved. And the signs of it, the signs of wealth for James's time, and nothing has changed much today, is the garments and the gold, and the silver, and the food supply. But of the garments, he says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Of the gold and silver, he says, it's corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't sound good, right? You've laid up treasure in the last days. And by the way, Gold and silver, these are metals that don't rust. They don't corrode. That's the irony of it. You think your riches are going to last, but they're not. You know, heaven's streets are paved with gold. In heaven, gold is like asphalt. And then the food supply. And where you get your food supplies, which is that you've got these laborers mowing your field, but you're keeping back their wage by fraud. You're not paying people the worthy wage that they deserve and you're living on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You're just living for yourself and what you can gain for yourself. And you're, what, you're, what you're actually doing is just fattening up your own heart for a day of slaughter. And, and Jeremiah twenty two thirteen says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. In Deuteronomy, it says that if you don't pay a day laborer before the sun goes down, his cries are going to be heard in heaven. And as Christians, we have a responsibility of, of paying the people that work for us. Like, if you're a business owner, like, this is stuff for you, Christians, <laughs> right? And, and, and if not, if, you, if we continue to selfishly indulge through unjust gains, you're just fattening yourself up for the slaughter, and yikes, Right? But again, this is speaking to people who are using money in unjust ways. They've, they've set their hearts upon that. I want to read three references here, and then we're going to end. First one is in Luke chapter 12. This is a parable that Jesus taught. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So someone in the crowd says, hey, can you settle this issue that I'm having about money but look at what Jesus says. But he said to the man, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? See, like Jesus didn't even put himself as a position of a judge in that situation. 
And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought of, him, uh, and he thought of himself, what, what shall I do? For, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, ah, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In the book of Revelation, as Jesus was writing to the last church there, the church of Laodicea, this was a city that had a lot of money. They were rich. Even at one point in history, their city was leveled at an earthquake, and other cities came in to try to help support and bring resources, and they said, no, 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 we're good. We'll just rebuild ourselves. We've got enough to take care of ourselves. They had prospered in their textile industries, making black wool. They had medical facilities that were making eye salve that was known throughout all that region for helping with blindness. They, they had gold, and they had silver, and they had everything that they needed. They, they, they were rich and self-dependent. But look at what Jesus said to them in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He was speaking to everything that they had done to be self-reliant and self-dependent. They're like, you missed it. It's all in me. So what have I been doing this morning as a pastor and teacher of God's word? I'm simply doing what I've been charged to do in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. I'm thankful that these have not been my words, but the very words of God from the pages of Scripture. And I just want to encourage you with this uh, final charge that I've received, and I hope that I've been faithful to give to you this morning, and it's this. As for the rich in this present age, and I think we can all include ourselves in that, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Come now. Don't you want that which is truly life? where God is God and you are not? Don't, don't you want that? And come now. Come now to the Lord. Draw near to God. Humble yourself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to them. Come now. Come to God. 
if you recognize you are not the judge, only God is, make plans, but submit them to the will of God. Have riches, but be rich toward God. Come now, understand your place. God is God, you are not. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your powerful word and the truth that it is to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you give more grace. And God, as more and more we find ourselves humbled throughout this wonderful book called James, we want to look more and more like you, Jesus, and only possible by your spirit as your word transforms us. I pray that the word has fallen upon good soil of hearts that the humble and wise have received, and Lord, that the proud and arrogance would be convicted and brought low. And so, Lord, we love you, we trust you to do your work among us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.